0: This morning. By the way, if you have a cell phone, would you please check it now and make sure that it's on mute? I think we all know here uh, what to do with our little ones. We're going to read uh, this morning Romans 14. Again, we're going to uh, abbreviate our reading. We read 1 through 13 last week. We're going to read 1 through 15. We will not uh, finish out the chapter nor read the first 13 verses of uh, chapter 15, but I urge you strongly to be reading these chapters repeatedly until you really begin to get the flow of what Paul is saying. This chapter, in my opinion, especially in our time, has been used to justify just about every worldly practice anybody can think of. And that is not its purpose. There is a genuine Christian liberty. More of that as we unfold these things. But everything on the planet or everything that just feels good to us is not our liberty. The greatest and most important filter that every one of us needs to have when we consider our liberty is love for our brethren. So we will be considering that as we take up our passage this morning. If you would now stand with me one more time, we're going to read Romans chapter 14, beginning in verse 1. Brethren, this is the Word of God. Him that is weak in the faith, receive ye, but not to doubtful disputations. For one believeth that he may eat all things, another who is weak eateth herbs. Let not him that eateth despise him that eateth not. And let not him which eateth not judge him that eateth. For God hath received him. Who art thou that judgeth another man's servant? To his own master he standeth or falleth, yea, he shall be holden up, for God is able to make him stand. One man esteemeth one day above another, another esteemeth every day alike. Let every man be fully persuaded in his own mind. He that regardeth the day regardeth it unto the Lord, and he that regardeth not the day to the Lord, he doth not regard it. He that eateth, eateth to the Lord, for he giveth God thanks. And he that eateth not, to the Lord he eateth not, and giveth God thanks. For none of us liveth to himself, and none dieth to himself. For whether we live, we live under the Lord, and whether we die, we die under the Lord. Whether we live, therefore, or die, we are the Lord's. For to this end Christ both died, and rose, and revived, that he might be Lord both of the dead and living. But why dost thou judge thy brother? Or why dost thou set it not, thy brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. For it is written, as I live, saith the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue confess to God. So then every one of us shall give account of himself to God. Let me repeat that. Every one of us shall give account of himself to God. Let us not therefore judge one another any more, but judge this rather, that no man put a stumbling block or an occasion to fall in his brother's way. I know and am persuaded by the Lord Jesus that there is nothing unclean of itself, but to him that esteemeth anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. But if thy brother be grieved, with thy meat. Now walkest thou not charitably. Destroy not him with thy meat for whom Christ died. Amen. Amen. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Let's unite our hearts at the throne of grace, brethren. O great God of wonders, almighty God, sovereign Lord, and our great creator, we praise thy name this morning. We magnify thee, Lord, the beautiful psalm read at the beginning of the service, I will extol thee, my God, O King, and I will bless thy name forever and ever. Every day will I bless thee, will I praise thee. Lord, may it be so of us. May we so love thee, may we be so gripped with thy greatness, with me, we may be may we be so filled with wonder and awe at thee and thy mighty works and thy great salvation that we cannot but gather To worship and adore Thee. Father, please. Be pleased. To visit us this morning. We need Thy Spirit. Every moment. Every day. But there will be no true worship. There will be no worship received in heaven. That does not come through Jesus Christ our Lord. That does not originate. In the regenerating and sanctifying power of the Holy Spirit. Lord, we cannot beat our flesh into loving and adoring Thee, but Thy Spirit can fill our hearts and fill our mouths with Thy praise. Fill us this morning. Grant us light, grant us wisdom. We want to hear from Thee. We need correction. Lord, we need instruction. In righteousness. We need to know. How to walk as thy people. In thy glorious kingdom. We need to know thee. We want to know thee. But thou must come by thy spirit. O Lord. Do not leave us. To our pharisaic flesh. But oh may the glories. Of the world to come. And that power. Fill our souls. Lift our hearts. To magnify and glorify Thee. To love Thee. And to love one another. Lord there are lost ones here this morning. How we plead with Thee. Show mercy. Fall upon those in darkness. Open their hearts as thou didst, Lydia. Open their hearts that they attend to the words of Scripture. Father, I pray for thy dear children. I do not know the kind of week they all have just had. But Lord, we come into this place in various states, differing conditions. And I pray every one of us is driven here by love for Christ. To come and to magnify thee and to love and encourage and serve one another. Help us, O Lord, to be a church that we find in the pages of Scripture that brings the glory. Get thy glory in this place today. And, O God, we pray for every church, every true church across this planet. Fill them, O God, with the mighty power of thy spirit, the rushing wind of thy spirit. May their hearts and souls be lifted up in praise all day long to thee. May we magnify thee in this Lord's day. Now, O God, help us. Help this weak vessel of dust. Help me to handle this word so that I might give account in that great and coming day. Fill thy temple, O Spirit of God, to the glory of Christ and our beloved Father. We pray it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Jesus was in Jerusalem in an upper room. He and his disciples were there to celebrate the Passover feast. In that context, Jesus delivered what we call his farewell discourse. Jesus knew that he would soon be crucified for the sins of his people. In that extraordinary address... He said, This a new commandment I give unto you that ye love one another as I have loved you, that ye also love one another. By this shall all men know, by this shall all men know that ye are my disciples, if ye have love one to another. Now I ask you, I ask myself, an important question. Do lost people in this world, Know that the people in this congregation are disciples of Jesus Christ by the love they manifest for one another. Would they have the slightest inkling that we were Christians not because we're loud? obnoxious passing out tracks at lunchtime not because we come to a building not because we necessarily look or sound a particular way other than this people that love God's people would they know would they know this is Jesus talking I don't want this to sound condescending. I'm saying this in the in the truest sense. Do we get this? Do you really get this? Do I? Do people see love for one another that affirms in their thinking that we're talking about even lost people? Lost people would say they must be Christians. Look how they love each other. That's a serious question. Jesus could have said this, by this shall all men know that uh, ye are my disciples. You're all Baptists. Or you're all Methodists, or you're all Presbyterians. You're all good five-point Calvinists. Let me ask you another question. I ask myself Do you believe one word of what Christ said here? If you do, ask yourself How am I obeying this commandment in this place with these people? for those of you visiting in your own congregation. This was not a new suggestion. This was not a new option. This was a new commandment. Now let me ask us one more. One more question. When we look at the professing bodies of Christ around the nation, at least in what exposure we may have to them. And it's very limited. Does this dying nation recognize that there are disciples of Jesus Christ in its bosom? Does it recognize not just people that... Stand outside the abortion clinic and preach and cry out to women not to kill their babies. That's an important thing. But it says the love that we have for one another. Are we the salt and light that this commandment requires? The Apostle John learned that lesson well. He repeated it five times in his first letter Love one another, love one another, love one another, love one another, love one another. Love one another. Five times. For example, beloved, Let us love one another, for love is of God. And everyone that loveth, the biblical way, is born of God. Now listen carefully. And knoweth God. The two go together. If you're born of God, you've begun to know God. Not simply know about God but to know God personally. And if that's the case, you can't get in the presence of him that is love and not have some of it reflect. As Moses' face shone, having been in the presence of God, there ought to be something Of a holy reflection. In our love one for another. Visitors that come among us. Should say. "Mm, There's something going on here. (laughs) This is not just the preaching station. John knew this. This lesson very well. He learned it from Christ. Christ. He saw it in Christ. Now, Peter learned that lesson. He wrote in his first letter, seeing ye have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit unto unfeigned love of the brethren. Unfeigned means real, genuine, not phony, not hypocritical. I love you, brother. And then go destroy you behind your back. So nice to be here with y'all this morning. Get me out of here as soon as possible. No, real love. Real. Vibrant. Obvious. Love. It was true of Christ. We're in union with Christ. It should be real we'll never be able to reflect it as much as we want to sometimes we're just little sparkles but it's still christ we want that showing but listen peter goes on to say unfeigned love of the brethren see that you love one another with a pure heart fervently oh that adverb that's important fervently It's easy to talk love, love you, and not have any biblical reality behind it. And Paul learned this lesson as well. John, Peter, and now here, Paul. He wrote to the divided church in Rome. This is why we're talking about it. This is why we have brought this up. Jesus' command is the doctrine for his churches. He gave it to the apostles. He taught them all about it. And then he expects us to manifest the family resemblance. Paul wrote to that divided church in Rome. Let love be without dissimulation. There we are again. Don't be phony. Don't tell me you love me if you don't. Don't say it if you don't mean it. Save your breath. Paul says, abhor that which is evil, cleave to that which is good. And then he goes on again. Be kindly affectioned. Oh, we can't just grit our teeth. (laughs) I know that's the way it is for some of us. I love you. I'm telling you, this this is the head of the church speaking to his church. This is what the Holy Spirit is doing within his people if he's there. Oh, my brethren, Paul says, be kindly affectioned one to another with brotherly love. These are commands. These are not suggestions. And then he goes on to say, in honor, preferring one another. Hmm. He then followed that with this exhortation. Oh no, man! Anything, but to love one another. See, Paul is not writing uh, simply a a mass of theology in a letter. It is a mass of theology, but he's speaking into a real situation with real people. He's not speaking hypothetically. He's telling them. As the representative of Jesus Christ in in the world. Like all of the apostles were. And as all of his people are. The greater and lesser degrees. They have a problem. They're divided. And there's some good reasons for those divisions. And there's some very bad reasons. For those divisions. He's speaking to them. And he exhorts them. Oh, no man, anything but to love one another that you owe me. (laughs) You owe it to love me. And I owe it to God to love you. How are we doing with that? For he that loveth another hath fulfilled the law. Why does he say that? Why does he bring that up? What's that got to do with love? Because the Jewish brothers and and sisters in that congregation were having a great struggle. As the weaker brethren. They were still tied in many ways to the ceremonial law. They were not able to grasp. They hadn't seen yet the fullness of their liberty in Christ. That they were no longer yoked to the ceremonial law. Paul doesn't yell at them he doesn't stomp and foam he doesn't get furious with them as a Jew he knows what they're wrestling with and he loves them he loves them and so all through his letter this glorious most famous letter Paul is working toward chapters 14 and 15 to speak of their unity And coming together in Christ Jesus. It's in the gospel that he spends the first. uh, eight uh, Eight chapters of the letter. Laying out. Then he speaks of Jews and Gentiles. And God's eternal purpose. In verses 9, 10, and 11. When he gets to 12. He starts saying now. Here's what the life in Christ. Here's what gospel living should look like. He's never theoretical. He's never just tossing out. uh, Well, here's the atonement. Uh, Here's justification. Everybody got it? All right, here's sanctification. All right. Hope to see you someday on my trip to Spain. That's not what he's doing. He wants the Jews and the Gentiles in that congregation to walk together in Christ. They're divided. The Jews believe they have a a scriptural reason for judging those Gentiles. And the Gentiles who've never been under the ceremonial law, law are looking down and despising them. When Paul says what he says here, he's not just speculating Oh, here's some Christian stuff. (laughs) I hope you get it. Mm -mm. He brings up the law because he wants those who are still looking to the law. To understand its function. There is a function for law in the life of the believer. Here's one of them right here. Paul defines love by the law and we don't generally think of it in those terms but that's often because sometimes the most popular theology of the day relegates law entirely to the old testament all no man anything but to love one another for he that loveth one another hath fulfilled the law For this, thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not bear false witness, thou shalt not covet. And if there be any other commandment, it is briefly comprehended in this saying. Namely, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Do you understand? He's not just giving a general principle. Now, we can mine it and get a general principle. But he's talking to people who are divided and they need to be showing to the world that they love one another in spite of conscience controversies. Love worketh no ill to his neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. We've got to know what the law is and what it says in order then To properly love. Paul understands the division. All we have to do is read the book of Acts, and we see Jew and Gentile all the way through the book, and the difficulties that Paul faced as Jew and Gentile were brought together, as he writes to the Ephesians, in one body. So, Jewish believers in Rome had weak consciences. And it was weak because they believed that they needed to continue keeping the ceremonial law. Paul wants both Jew and Gentile to realize that the law is summed up in loving one another. Do you see his strategy? you want to talk about the law? Let's talk about what it should be accomplishing. Love for God, love for one another. We have the moral law, yes. The ceremonial law seems to be the issue here. But he wants them to realize that they're to love one another. That's what the law would say to both Jew and Gentile. The matter of loving one another lies at the heart of Paul's exhortations here in chapter 14. If we love Christ's people, we will do all we can to avoid setting a stumbling block before them. See, he's, he is building verse at a time in chapter 14. That's why we've taken a good bit of time working our way toward verse 13, 14, and 15. Because he's going to get back to that issue of stumbling blocks. That will help us when we go back to 1 Corinthians 8 through 11. Stumbling blocks. Stumbling blocks. Most of us have heard the word, seen the word, maybe gotten kind of a fuzzy notion of what that might mean. But we don't fear putting a stumbling block before someone. This is why Paul's writing. He's saying, do everything you can to avoid a stumbling block. Now, uh, uh, our message this morning, therefore, is entitled, The Dreadful Sin of Stumbling a Believer. That's part seven. May God, our Father, our loving Heavenly Father, the God who is love, move in our hearts by His Spirit of love to love Christ and His people. Jesus loved us and gave himself for us. Let's learn in that school. Well, uh, for those of you that are visiting with us, we have been uh, working our way fairly slowly through chapter 14. We're not doing a word-by-word exposition of chapter 14, but we are doing what I might refer to as a, a quite an extended footnote ...to some studies in 1 Corinthians 8-11. through Those two chapters are different in many ways. But they also hold certain principles together. And that is why we're taking a little time here with chapter 14. We're under one primary heading, if you see it on your, your outline. It's what are the Holy Spirit's primary lessons in chapter 14. I'm not giving you by any means all the lessons that are here, but we're looking at some of the most important ones that affect the subject we're considering, which is the conscience. What have we looked at so far? I repeat this so that we can see how Paul is moving in a direction. He's arguing a particular way. He's moving in between the two opposing forces, and he's pressing both sides to think. His pastoral work here is over the top. It's beautiful. First, chapter 14, verses 1 and 2, teaches that Christ's congregations are usually made up of strong and weak. The strong must, according to the, the very first verse... The strong must welcome the weak, but not to disputes over doubtful things. These are conscience controversies. For those that have not been with us, we have have determined uh, by our study of Scripture, this is not a perfect template to lay over the Scriptures, but there are what we would call primary doctrine. They're non-negotiable. The Trinity... The deity of Christ, the incarnation, the blood atonement of the Lord Jesus, his return. And, and, and we could go on, on, on a list. These are not negotiable. We all may have slightly differing perspectives on it as we come to it and as we're trying to learn to live in it. But we can't set those doctrines aside. That's not what Paul's talking about here. It's also not secondary doctrine. I want to say, as I've said almost every week, because it is secondary, does not mean it's not important. If it's God's word, it's important. But there are doctrines that God's people for centuries have wrestled over. I see them in there, and yet... (laughs) You know, I may come to a, a, a slightly different conclusion about how that fits into the rest of the, 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 the scriptures than than you do. I was doing a Bible study once in the, the, the place where I worked. <clears throat> and uh, excuse me, I went to a Bible study in a place where I was working. It was lunchtime. I went in and I sat down and uh, the, the two fellows that were leading the the study were, were Pentecostals. I, I, I wanted to get to know them. If they, if they knew the Lord, I wanted to walk with them, at least at what level we could. There'd be some things we'd disagree on, but it didn't take long to get to that part. All right? We said, I, I sat down and they said to me, they said, uh, we, we hear that, that you believe in the sovereignty of God in election." I said, I do. And they said, well, we don't believe the scriptures teach that. And I said, well, let me just read something to you. All right. I opened up my Bible. I took Ephesians chapter one and I just started to read it carefully. Verse by verse. I got to the part where it speaks very plainly of election. You see the sovereignty of God is plainly laid out there. The words are in there. I didn't put the words in there. John Calvin didn't put the words in there. I got finished. And before I could say anything, they said, that's just your opinion. (laughs) I said, actually, it was Paul's conviction, (laughs) not my opinion. I haven't said anything yet. I can tell you what I think about Paul's conviction of predestination and election. I said, but (laughs) I said, I didn't put this in here. The Holy Spirit of God, that Holy Spirit, put it in here. So, we might look at that doctrine and come to a different view about what predestination and election means, but you can't say that you believe the Bible if you don't believe that predestination and election are in there. You can't do it because the Holy Spirit put those words there. So that's just an example. We might disagree on predestination and how it must be understood. But it's in there. Now, 14, chapter 14, verses 3 and 4 teach that God receives his children, whether strong or weak of conscience whether strong or weak. He doesn't just say, he doesn't have a sign on the front of a church building or wherever the Lord's people are gathering that says (laughs) strong Christians only. The SCO group. All right? He doesn't say that. No, God welcomes his people. And there are weak ones and strong ones when it comes to their consciences. So, for that reason, we must not look down on or judge one another. God's servants stand or fall to him alone, and God can make us stand. Number three, chapter 14, verse 5, teaches that all believers should be fully persuaded of why they believe what they believe. In many conscience, controversies i've sat down and listened to people and 5 minutes in i know that they've never studied the issue sometimes it gets a little further in but it doesn't take long to say you know what you know i appreciate where you're at <clears throat> and I, and i hope you'll understand how i'm saying this i encourage you to go back and look at both sides of the arguments on that make sure you really understand what's being said by both sides. You might find uh, that there is another way to see this. Again, this is not primary doctrine. It's not secondary doctrine. It's conscience controversies. That's the third category we must be sure that we have earnestly sought God's face and have diligently studied a matter until we know why we believe it, why we believe anything and what we believe. What you and I feel. Listen carefully. What you and I feel. Third time, just to make sure. What you and I feel is not the issue. What God says is the issue. And to... First of all, settle an issue in your mind. You have to know what God says first. You have to actually know what he says. There are times when people have come and said, well, you know, sorry, pastor, I've got a a kind of a heavy report for you. You know, someone said this or that. And, you know, they're really bothered because of this and that. And I say, "Okay, what did I do? Well, you said and I listen and I go. I don't hear me. What, what was I supposed to have said? Hmm. I didn't say that. <laughs> oh, uh, if you want to tell the person to come and talk with me, I'll tell them what I said. But once you get down what is said, you've got to get to the next step. What does it mean? See, we hear people use words that we use. And we put our meaning to what they just said. Every one of us in here uh, does that. Every one of us. It is astounding how often. Those of you that have been married for very long. Know good and well. That you say things you know exactly what you meant by what you said. But your spouse did not hear what you meant. In fact he or she Might simply be interpreting really poorly, but because you chose certain words that she had a or he had a filter for. It's true. You've got to know what is said, and then you've got to know what it means. That takes interpreting, and that means you've got to do some study. And then you can apply it because if you don't do step 1 and step 2 well, you are never going to do step 3 correctly. What does it say? What does it mean? Now how do I apply it? Okay, well Paul is is working that out. He's talking to them, he's explaining it, and then he's applying it to them. Be fully persuaded. Well, mom and dad did this. Well, my family always used to. Um, Famous preacher A always says this. Uh, The church I went to used to practice. I'm not going to take a shot at any of those things. I'm simply going to say to you, they're not the authority. The word of God is the authority. Is it in harmony with the word of God? That's essential. So, that's what Paul's ultimately saying. Jew, Gentile, be fully persuaded. I can eat that. I can't eat that. He knew well that if they all in love began to think about it and look at it, some of them would change their views. Chapter 14, verses 5 and 9 teaches that Jesus alone is the Lord of his people and of their consciences. Jesus alone. And now, that's crucial. We've considered four applications under that heading. That brings us to verses 10 through 13a. This is where we left off last time. And again, I've taken the longer review because I want you seeing how these steps are working together toward Paul's goal he wants unity they're judging and they are looking down their noses at one another this doesn't bring glory to God and we all like being on the winning team we want our team to, to win so I think this is the team and so I'm hanging with this team well, you need, to, you need to pray, you need to study, you need to be Berean. <clears throat> you have a mind. God wants you to love him with all your mind. Part of that is the study of his word and then fashioning your life according to it. So we're looking at number five here this morning. Verses 10 to 13a teach that all believers will give account of their lives In the day of judgment. This is a bomb. That Paul has been working up to. And it's detonation time. Verse 9 says. For to this end. Christ both died. And rose. And revived. That he might be Lord. Both of the dead and the living. Now if you think carefully. About that. Jesus died, Jesus rose again, that he might be the great and sovereign Lord, dead and living. In other words, he's the Lord of everybody, even people that don't believe in him. He's the Lord. They don't make him Lord. They don't affect his lordship. God the Father appointed him Lord. He is Lord. He can't be anything other than Lord. There isn't another Lord. It's just Christ, the Lord. Now, if we think carefully about that, we can better understand verse 10. But why dost thou judge thy brother? If Jesus is the Lord, why do you judge your brother? Why dost thou set at naught thy brother? Now, setting at naught, we don't say that very often today. It means to despise. We know that. To show contempt. Why are you showing contempt to your brother? The conjunction but introduces those two questions. And those two questions are rebukes. Paul is rebuking them when he asks this. They echo verse 4 where he says, Who art thou that judgest another man's servant? Who do you think you are? Who are you to judge another believer? Who are you? Why is he saying it that way? Because Jesus is the Lord and Jesus is the judge. Now, for those of you out there that are thinking, you're going to to run to, okay, yeah, 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 we'll get that. But uh, doesn't it say judge righteous judgment? Yes, it does. Jesus said that. We're still not to that yet. We'll get there. The reason I continue to put it off is because we need to get this. Because very often we will take one portion of scripture that seems to agree with us a little more and we'll completely cancel out something that balances it. That's not good reading, that's not loving the Lord with our minds. If the both of them are in the scripture, we have to understand both of them as they work together. Because they're the inspired and infallible words of God. So Paul has just revealed that Jesus is the absolute sovereign of living and dead. And it is as if he said, Jesus is the crucified and resurrected Lord of all. Since that is true, how dare you weak ones judge the stronger. You are not their Lord. I just declare to you who the Lord is. Since that is true, how dare you weak ones judge the stronger? Ah, you strong ones despise the weaker. Same same thing. You are not their Lord. The weak ones generally judge. The so-called stronger ones generally despise. Take a hike, guys. Get out of my grace. Right? At least there's a pocket of American Christianity that seems to walk that way. Now. <clears throat> Paul follows those two rebukes. Notice. Notice. He's rebuking both sides. He has encouraged both sides. These guys don't eat. And they they don't eat to the Lord. And they give him thanks. And here are the other guys. They do eat. They eat to the Lord. And they give him thanks. Now he reproves both of them. Why do you judge... And why do you despise? Jesus is the Lord. Not you. Jesus is the judge. Not me. <clears throat> Paul follows those two rebukes with this sobering proclamation. For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. This is a reason. You, you, need, you need to ask. It's perfectly okay to to question scripture if it's done with love and desire. Why is this here? Why is it said here? Why is Paul saying this stuff? He's trying to bring two warring factions together. Right? You have to bear that in mind. He's not just throwing out aphorisms for the Christian life. He's trying to bring some people together that are in sin. They're judging and despising each other. Happens all the time. I wish you could say That was left behind and all resolved in Rome two two millennia ago. No, it's right here with us today. We shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. He then gives his authority for saying so. For it is written, as I live, saith the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. That's an astounding revelation. Paul takes the judgmental and despising Christians of the Roman church into the presence of Christ on the day of judgment. Do you realize it's what he's doing? All right, you guys are fighting over what you're eating and what you're drinking. He's going to tell us a little later, that's not what the kingdom's about. And he says, listen, let's all go... To where the real judge is. Let's all go. And realize. uh, Those of you that are judgmental. You're going to be. Giving an account before Jesus Christ. Those of you that are looking down your nose. At your brothers. You're going to be giving an account. Before the Lord Jesus Christ. You see his argument. Who do you think you are. We're all going to be there. We're all going to be there. It is a day beyond anything that our minds can comprehend. Everyone in this room, everyone in this city, everyone in this country, everybody on this globe and everybody that's lived since Adam and Eve are going to be there. Everyone giving an account. Paul says, are you ready for that? You ready to judge your brother and you ready to despise your brother? And then go stand before Christ. What an incredible thing he's done here. Here, what an argument. He says, let's all think about that great throne. You're going to be there. You, 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 and you, and you, and you're all going to be there. And the thoughts you've had toward others, whether you're a Christian or not, and things you've said and done, you're going to give an account. His reason, Paul's reason for taking them to the judgment throne should be obvious. Who are we to judge when we're all going to be judged by Jesus the judge? Jesus himself told us in Matthew chapter 25, verses 31 and 32. When the Son of Man shall come in his glory. Oh, just that phrase. I mean, that that clause. How beautiful. When, when, it's a when, it's going to happen. We're a day closer, we're a second, we're a minute, we're an hour, we're a day closer to that. The Son of Man shall come in His glory and all the angels with Him. What an extraordinary shining host. Then shall He sit upon the throne of His glory and before Him shall be gathered all nations and he shall separate them one from another as a shepherd divideth his sheep from the goats. It's pretty clear. Again, speaking to Christians in second Corinthians chapter five, verse 10, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that every one may receive the things done in his body. According To that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. And in Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 through 15, John, with his extraordinary vision given to him, he says, I saw a great white throne, and him that sat on it, from whose face the earth and heaven fled away. And there was, not, there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God. And the books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books. Your life is written. Do you not understand you're being recorded? I'm not talking about the NSA. I am talking about the living God. Every thought, every word, every deed. He knows it all. He has your file and it's perfect. He won't lose it. It won't be erased from the hard drive. You and I are known in heaven. Our thoughts, our words, and our deeds And that great day is coming. It is coming. It will not be postponed. It will not be rescheduled. It will not be set off to another time. It will come when God looks at his son and says, go. And he will come in all his glory. And everybody's arguments will drop into eternity. We will stand before him. The dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it. The adjective great points to the immensity, the magnificence, the majesty of Christ's throne. Beginning with Adam and Eve, all human beings throughout history will be gathered And stand before that throne. That throne. Christ is on that throne. All of the governments. All of the rulers. All of the civil servants that have lived through history. Will fade into nothing. In the presence of the king. Christ's glorious, dazzling presence is so pure, so holy, and so awesome that heaven and earth flee from him. But there was no place to hide. There was no place to hide. Peter said in his second letter. Chapter 3, verse 10, the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night the which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. The earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up. All of our stuff gone. All of it. All of it. All of our trophies. See how wonderful I was. You see all the things that I won. It won't be there. There will be one glorious figure there. The Lord Jesus Christ. The very centerpiece of heaven. The very trophy of heaven. The very king of kings and lord of lords. All will be burned up. All of our trinkets. All of our toys. All of our stuff. All of our works. All of our history. Myra and I have been trying to downsize certain things in our home for a number of reasons and I remember standing and looking at certain pictures and looking at newspaper articles and all that kind of stuff that I'd been keeping for decades and decades and she said we don't don't really need that do we I said it's part of my history and then I thought about what I said it's all going to burn it's all going to burn. It's all going to burn. John affirms in Revelation chapter 21, verse 1, I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth were passed away and there was no more sea. To that astonishing scene, Paul carries The quarreling Romans. He reaches into the prophet Isaiah. Chapter 45. Verses 22 through 25. Look unto me. And be ye saved. All the ends of the earth. For I am God. And there is none else. I've sworn by myself, the word has gone out of my mouth in righteousness and shall not return, that un- listen, listen, unto me every knee shall bow. every knee in this room is going to bow. Every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear. surely. Shall one say in the Lord have I righteousness and strength. Even to him shall men come. And all that are incensed against him shall be ashamed. God's into shaming. In the Lord shall all the seed of Israel be justified. And shall glory. Friends, the one true living God calls the ends of the earth to look to him for the pardon of sin, to look to him for everlasting life. And then he declares, everyone's going to bow. Sin's forgiven, washed away in the blood of Jesus Christ. But then everybody's going to bow. Unto me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear. Every atheist in this world or that has ever been, every unbeliever will say, Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. There's not going to be any whispering. They're all going to acknowledge in the presence of his glory. That he alone sits on the throne. That passage, that passage in Isaiah, unmistakably applies to God and to God alone. And under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, Paul applies it to the Lord Jesus. Do we hear it? Look at his body hanging on the cross. Look at what seems to be nothing but failure. Look at the weakness. Here was the great king. Here was the miracle worker. He's groaning in agony. He doesn't look like a king. He doesn't look like a conqueror. He doesn't look like he has triumphed. It looks like he's lost the game. But in that blood and gore is the everlasting life of all his people. There was no loss on the cross. He won for us everlasting life. And as God says in Isaiah 46, and then every knee shall bow and every tongue. When Jesus Christ comes and sits on his throne, every liar, every unbeliever, every person that has scoffed at the gospel, everybody that has hated God's people, everybody that has persecuted God's people will tremble before God throws them into hell. All of their arguments will vanish. As they lie down in the flames of hell forever. Some of you are here and you don't. You don't love Christ. Here's something worse. You don't seek Christ. There's not a desire in your heart for Christ. You don't want this day to happen. But it will. You need Christ. Come to the one king listen Paul says in his letter to the Philippians that passage that we I trust all know Jesus made himself of no reputation Jesus made himself of no reputation having been in the form of God and he took upon him the form of a slave a servant and was made in the likeness of men and being found in fashion as a man he humbled himself and became obedient unto death even the death of the cross Wherefore, one of the most beautiful wherefores in the Bible. One of the most beautiful wherefores in the Bible. Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him. Men live for the praise of other men. Dying men want the praise. They want the filthy breath of lost and dying men. But in that day, Every vocal cord is going to vibrate with Jesus Christ as Lord. To the glory of God the Father. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. And every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord of the glory of God the Father. Jesus. Oh, that precious name. Jesus. The Word made flesh, the God-man, is Lord and judge of all. He will rend the heavens and come down in breathtaking splendor and in awe-inspiring holiness. He will separate the sheep from the goats, believers and non-believers, everyone that has ever drawn breath will be there every wicked man, woman and child, every righteous man, woman and child. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, Aaron, the priesthood, Saul, David, Solomon, all the good kings, all the bad kings, all the Caesars and all the despots and dictators. Everybody's going to be there. All, all, all. Here's the point. All will stand before the judge. And so Paul says to the Romans who are bickering and judging each other, despising each other. He says, you know, we're all going to be there. Why are you judging each other? I say to you. Who are you judging in this congregation? Who are you despising and looking down on in this congregation? I would hope with all my heart that it wouldn't be true of a soul here. But there's enough, enough of us in here. Somebody's got a grudge, somebody's upset, somebody's a little irritated, somebody's annoyed, somebody's looking down on someone else and someone's judging. They do this and I don't do that. Therefore, by default, they can't be real Christians. They can't. They don't agree with me. We need to make sure we're in agreement with Jesus. That's it. Are you in agreement with Jesus? Do you take his word out and look in that mirror to see your complexion? Do you look in this mirror to see what your condition is? Do you come to the great physician and say, "Uh, something's wrong with me. Can you heal me? Can you tell me where I'm sick? Can you put your finger on what's wrong with me? He'll do it. The Holy Spirit will. The Word of God will. We need to come to the the one who's going to judge us. Make sure we've got as many things clear as we can before that day comes. How do we do that? It begins with repentance and faith. Believing the gospel. Believing that the God-man, Jesus Christ, died on Calvary's cross to save his people from their sins. Very big in certain forms of music to hear this. Only God can judge me. Only God can judge me. Well, he is and he will. If you're not in Christ, you're already judged. You are under the condemnation god's law you need a savior and the good news is that the only one there is is willing to receive to welcome sinners now these passages make clear why paul moves on To verse 12 and says, so then every one of us shall give account of himself to God. That's got a little weight behind it. That's got weight behind it. Now, let me say the the thought may have arisen in some of you, but it's outside the scope of what we're trying to get to we will not enter the debate among Reformed theologians and others about whether the believer's sins will be revealed in that day or no. Now, that may be disappointing to some, but suffice it to say for our purposes here, and I say this with all my heart and with fear and trembling, whatever Christ chooses to reveal about me, whatever is part of the account that I will give. I will be staring at the one whose blood washed it all away. And if it gives him Glory to say, here's Pollard's nightmare book. Mm-hmm. It will all be to his glory. Amen. Everyone will look and say, the greatness of that Savior Amen. for such a fool. It is the same for each of you here, except those of you who will not come to Christ, those of you who want this world and want to stay in it, you will not see a a Savior. You will only see the judge. And the glory he will get in your life is when he casts you into hell. For your rebellions against him. So, Jesus is the judge. He's the only one that will say, enter into the realms of glory. No one else. And he's the only one that will say, depart from me. I never knew you. Which one will you hear? Examine yourself. Examine yourself today. Which one will you hear? Now, with something that immense before us, can we get why Paul says, now, stop judging each other. Stop judging each other. Well, number six, and this is where we stop today. Chapter 14, verses 13 through 15 teach that we must not let our liberty destroy a weaker believer. That's what Paul's been building up to. That's what he's been building up to. So that's where we will take up, God willing, next week. He's going to bring out the issue of stumbling blocks. And I imagine that if you will listen carefully next week, you will hear things you have not thought about. I know that in the last year and a half, I've had to encounter things I've never thought about and never dealt with. And the more I began to study and look at these matters, I began to realize how often I put a stumbling block in front of somebody else. How my attitude, even about right things, could make someone stumble. Might be true of you as well. So may Christ help us to welcome our brothers and our sisters in the love of Christ. Let us learn to hear one another. Let us seek to inflame our love for Christ and for his people. And let us labor for greater outpourings of the Holy Spirit. Paul wants the Roman Christians to be unified in Christ. So he's going to plunder more of the issues of conscience and stumbling blocks as we continue. Let's pray that we will have a teachable spirit. Let's pray that we're praying through the week and ready to hear what God says about how our lives affect others. And may it all be to his eternal glory and to the great good and love Of his people. Amen. Father, we thank thee for thy grace and goodness. We can do nothing without thee. Nothing, nothing. Father, we can't even fail unless you give us another heartbeat. But I pray with all my heart now. We've opened up thy word. We've thought of Christ. I trust we have looked at ourselves in the light of Christ. And now, O God, move in the hearts of all those gathered. And we pray it that thou wouldst be exalted forever and ever in Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. If you would please stand with me. Now the God of patience and consolation, grant you to be like-minded one toward another according to Christ Jesus, that ye may with one mind and one mouth glorify God, even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Wherefore, receive ye one another as Christ also received us to the glory of God. Amen. Let's go in the name of Christ Jesus.